0: Friends, let's open in our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 25. We're going to look at 1 Samuel 25, and I'm going to read most of the story that's found here. Beginning in verse 1, hear now God's word. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him at his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich and he had 3,000 sheep and a 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent 10 young men and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name and thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you and peace be upon your house and peace be all to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us and we did them no harm and they missed nothing in all the time that they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore let my young men find favor in your eyes for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all these things to Nabal in the name of David and they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed from my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on a sword. David also strapped on his sword, and about 400 of them went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields, as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day, all the while we were keeping the sheep." Now therefore know this and consider what you should do for harm is determined against our master and against all his house and he is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. And Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, go on before me, behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. Abigail, she confronts David, and David responds in verse 32. David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from avenging myself with my own hand. For surely as the Lord, uh, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried to come to meet me truly by morning, there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. And David received from her hand what she brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast at his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. David sends a messenger to Abigail to receive her in marriage. Verse 42, and Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife to Paltry, the son of Laish, who is of Gelim. Friends, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you now open our minds and our hearts to your word? Would you allow us as a community of faith, as a church, as a group of friends to read and apply these very things, to have the courage to do this, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've said again and again that David is a foreshadow of Jesus. When David rises to his throne and he gathers this new community around him, that looks forward to Jesus who resurrects to his throne and he gathers a new community, the church around him. But I think this dramatic role that David has in foreshadowing Christ, this unique role that none of us will ever share can obscure the fact that Jesus that David shows us Jesus, but David himself is not Jesus. He demonstrates, he foreshadows, he becomes a type of Jesus, but he himself is not Jesus. I was talking to somebody between the services, and he said, you know, through this entire series, I know that David is the good guy and Saul is the bad guy, but I keep uh, finding myself in Saul and not in David. We can begin to do that and see the righteousness of David. But truly, when you begin to strip away the historical context, when you begin to strip away this important role that he has in salvation history, we find a man. David, a man who is a fellow believer. He's a brother and he wrestles deeply with sin and in doubt. In fact, a lot of the ways that David wrestles makes us see ourselves in him. We see the ways that he wrestles as we do. And so David then has this double way of showing us Jesus. David shows us Jesus by becoming a deliverer and winning a kingdom. He demonstrates that, but he also shows us Jesus because he needs a deliverer who wins a kingdom. I mean, David is going to save Israel from the Philistines, but who is going to save David from himself? It's that second way of showing Jesus that we're going to examine today, because in chapter five, we see this cycle that happens in the life of a believer every single day and every single hour. It's a cycle of repentance and faith, repentance and faith, repentance and faith. Our text, it teases it out a little bit, and so we get four steps out of these two, and that is faith, sin, conviction, repentance. And then you repeat, faith, sin, conviction, repentance. I wanna look at these just very briefly each in turn. Number one, faith. David does indeed demonstrate a life of faith, a life of righteousness. I love watching this. David is, God is making David into a man after his own heart and David begins to show mercy to people around him. So in chapter 23, when the city of Keilah was in danger, David shows mercy and he fights for them. Chapter 24, last week, when Saul is vulnerable before him, David shows mercy to Saul. And in this chapter, chapter 25, at the very beginning, when Nabal's shepherds are out in the wilderness, David shows mercy to them. This is beautiful because God has extended mercy to David. He has drawn David to himself and now we get to watch mercy become one of David's defining characteristics. The mercy that he receives, he turns around and gives to others. This is spiritual fruit. The life of a believer will be marked by spiritual fruit. The Holy Spirit says that he will come and live inside of us and he will bear good fruit that we can see and identify in one another. Step one, he demonstrates faith. But step two, sin. Sadly, this side of heaven, every believer, every hour will sin and fall short of the glory of God and sometimes in really big and awful ways. David, he gets slighted by this man, Nabal. And it's worth saying a few things about this man before we go on. It's interesting that we're introduced to him by his possessions before we ever hear his name. We hear about all the things that he owns before we're actually introduced to a man named Nabal. And when David's servants come to them and they ask him for his assistance, his response in verse 11 is full of personal pronouns. We read this, I, 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 my bread, my water, my meat, my shears. When he says this, when he responds in this way, he sounds a lot like the rich young fool in Luke 12 who says in Jesus' parable, I will build bigger barns for my grain and my goods. It's so fitting to make the connection between these two because both of them will die hoarding their possessions. So David is slighted by this man. man. Now, to, To be fair, Nabal never asked David's men to defend his sheep. His sheep are out in the wilderness. His shepherds are taking care of them, but they are vulnerable, and David's men are camped nearby, and David takes it upon himself to build a wall around them and to protect them so that no person or no animal takes any of his sheep. Nabal didn't ask for that, but that was a very generous act of David. And every single person in this story, from David's men to Nabal's men to this unnamed servant to Abigail, they all understand this was a generous act. And if, if Nabal doesn't respond in kind, that is only because of his selfishness. So David is slighted. It's a true slight. But David, in response, he loses his ever-living mind. I mean, he tells his men to strap their swords on them. They charge down this mountain. And David swears to God that he will kill every single man in Nabal's house. That is Extreme. That is a temper we haven't quite seen in David before. It's interesting that the Old Testament law, it does prescribe capital punishment for certain offenses, only offenses against human life. You would never uh, enact capital punishment against somebody in the Old Testament law for harming somebody's property. You could be put to death for murder. You could be put to death for kidnapping a person and forcing them into slavery. You could be put to death for offering your child as a sacrifice to an adulterous God, but you could never, ever, ever be put to death in the Old Testament for harming another person's property. It's just not worth it. No matter how valuable that property is, it's never worth a life. And here, David, in a split decision, says that he is going to take human life for property. He's going to kill these men because they did not feed his men. It's an explosion of a temper that we're going to revisit in a little bit. Once this happens, you have faith, you have him falling into sin, and then three, you have conviction. When we sin... God convicts us and this is a really, really good thing. God, he does this in a number of different ways. Sometimes he speaks to us through his Holy Spirit to our hearts and we understand this conviction. Sometimes God convicts us by sending a beautiful and discerning woman bringing skins of wine on a donkey. And truly, I've always responded better to the latter of those two than the former. But that's what happens in our passage. Now, we just got done celebrating David's vision of God in chapter 24, right? We saw that he is a clear vision of God who is his judge and mediator and deliverer so that he doesn't have to be. And David, because of that vision of God, he does incredible things. He passes up this opportunity to kill Saul. He's able to stand his men down in the back of the cave. He's not going to grasp and grab for things that God is going to give him as a gift. It's incredible to see that in David. And yet, before we can blink, David is running down the side of a mountain to act as his own judge and mediator and deliverer. Everything we thought he had learned in the previous chapter, he's undoing in this chapter because he's seizing at these very things. That is until Abigail, Nabal's wife, she comes, she takes her life in her own hands, she stands in the path in front of David and 400 armed and angry men, and she says, forgive me forgive me my sin, forgive my husband his sin, and because I know God will speak to you and you will relent of what you're about to do, she says in verse 26, the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. Hint, hint, David, do not be your own deliverer and do not be guilty of trying to save with your own hand. I know God is going to speak to you and you're not gonna do that. David, because of this intervention, he sees his hypocrisy and he is convicted. And so number four, David repents. In this instance, David hears this, he's convicted and he repents. Now he's standing in front of 400 men who he just gave a command to. He just swore to God what he was going to do. And a woman steps out and confronts him. And at the risk of embarrassing himself and humiliating himself in front of all these men who had just followed him, David sees his sin and he relents and he repents. And he says in verse 32, Blessed be the Lord who sent you, you have kept me from blood guilt. Repentance is acknowledging before God what he says about our sin, it is putting that sin down and it is turning to follow Jesus. And in this instance, David does that very thing, he repents. Well. I'd like to end the sermon there. We've gone through the entire cycle. We're ending on a high note here. We've seen these stages of faith and then sin and then conviction and then repentance. And it feels like the life lesson has been learned. The timeless truth has been instilled and we can kind of go from here and expect a life of faith from David, but not so fast. We don't get to do that. Have any of you guys seen the movie Flight with Denzel Washington? Anybody seen that movie? Nobody in this room, one person. Okay, this will be a great illustration then. Um, The movie Flight is Denzel Washington. He plays the role of an alcoholic pilot. And so he was actually drunk on a day. He's flying a plane and it crashes. He's able to maneuver it and save many of the people on the flight, but he still needs to go to trial. He needs to appear before the National Transportation Safety Board, and that's coming in a few weeks, and it would be to his great benefit if he could become sober before he stands before that trial so that he will not be guilty of driving a plane, a commercial plane, drunk. And so you watch him over the course of these weeks just wrestle with sobriety I mean, it's just ugly and it's awful to see his addiction to alcohol, and he goes back and forth with that until finally he comes to his wits' end. He goes to a friend's house. He says, I need desperate help. The friend lets him stay in a spare bedroom, and he becomes sober. Up until the night before the trial, the friend says, You know what? I'm going to put you in a hotel room so that you'll get a good night's sleep, a good dinner, you'll be ready for our 8 a.m. trial. And we've cleared every drop of alcohol from this place. We've searched your bag. You don't have it. It's not in your hotel room. You stay here and we're gonna post a guard outside the door to ensure that you will be sober at the time of your trial. So he does. You watch Denzel kind of wrestle around the room and he's restless and uh, the night ticks on until he realizes that the door is open, of course, between the two hotel rooms, between his and another. And it's a very nice hotel and he opens that door And he realizes there's a kitchen there with a mini fridge that is fully stocked. Denzel opens the door to the fridge, and the camera is dramatic. Denzel's on the one side of the fridge, and the camera is shooting through all these beautiful mini bottles to Denzel. And I've actually had a, a lot of people tell me that I look like Denzel Washington. And so it's like I'm, I'm seeing myself in the mirror as I'm watching an older version, a less handsome version of myself, like, engage with this. I'm totally joking. But he grabs a bottle And he licks his lips and he stands up and you're watching him and you're just pleading in your heart, don't do this. I've seen the pain that this has brought. Please don't do this. And in a dramatic way, he slams the bottle on top of the counter and he walks away back to his hotel room. And there is a literal sigh of relief from the audience. I mean, my breath, this is amazing. You don't often sigh out loud, but you're just so encouraged by this until you see a hand Snatch the bottle off the counter, walk back to the room, and in the very next scene, you find him completely drunk in his hotel room. It's dramatic and it's awful. That is the drama of 1 Samuel 25. It's much more subtle than the scene of flight, but it is here because the passage is forcing us to reckon with a Christian who bears good fruit in his life, who in some areas of his life, he repents and confesses and receives forgiveness, and yet he deals with a debilitating addiction. Here it is in verses 42 and 43. After this cycle, we read that David is going to take for himself two more wives in addition to the one that he had already had. This is bold-faced lust. It is sinful for David to do this and to grab this and to take this. There's actually a direct relationship between lust at the end of the chapter that David engages in and the anger that he experiences in the center of the chapter that we saw. I'm afraid you're going to accuse me of a Freudian reading of this passage, but I'm reading a book on sexual addiction right now, John Freeman's Hide or Seek. And he draws this connection between these two emotions. He says, and he's been in this ministry for decades among people who struggle with sexual addiction, I've been in ministry in this area long enough to say that I've never known a man who wrestled unproductively with lust and sexual sin who doesn't have a deep anger problem. Isn't that interesting? I don't know if you've ever made the connection between those two things, but Pornography and lust are cruel worlds of domination, of selfishness, of taking what's not ours to become our own. And if we think that we can turn off a screen on our computer or in our minds and then transform into a a selfless, life-giving person to other people, we're kidding ourselves, That doesn't happen. We're not wired that way. Freeman says that we resort to anger, anger against others, anger towards God. That might look like a slow boil anger in which we become disengaged from people around us, our friends and our family and our church community or it might be raging anger that we experience when we dominate and explode at other people, but all the while, whether it's anger or lust, we're doing what we've always trained our hearts to do all the while. David, his anger subsides, but then his lust flourishes and he grabs these two wives because he's becoming accustomed to dominating and to taking. That's what his heart is being trained to do this is wrong. This is evil. This is sinful. The Old Testament law, it prohibits this. Samuel, when Israel was asking for a king, he begged them to realize that a king might do something like this. But we read in verse one that Samuel is now dead and there is no Abigail to confront David in this sin. And so you see these little embers of lust in David's heart. They are fanned and they grow. They're fanned and they grow. What's so troubling to us to see is that all the while that that is happening, David, in other areas, he flourishes. David, in the season after this, he's gonna write some of the most beautiful, heartfelt, worshipful Psalms. David, he's gonna go on from here and he's gonna do ministry. He's gonna win the Lord's battles. David is going to continue this cycle of repentance and faith in other areas of his life. He's going to demonstrate these things, but lust grows as far as we can see, unchecked by other people in his life. By the time David becomes king of Israel, he will have six kids from six different women. When we read in 2 Samuel chapter 11, when David's on a rooftop and he should have been at war, and he looks out and he sees another man's wife, it can seem like the sin with Bathsheba just dropped out of the sky, but scripture shows us it hasn't it's been fed, it's been raging. By the time we get to that scene, which is a full 20 years later, this lust is a raging flame in David's heart, and he takes what he should not have because he has trained his heart to do that. When he feeds this addiction, it has disastrous consequences it has consequences for his soul it has consequences for his kingdom it has consequences for the people and the children he has that he hurts and it has consequences for his sons after him who become predators in their own right Amnon and Absalom and Solomon The reason I'm pausing here over these last two verses that otherwise could be obscure and talking about sexual addiction is a very specific reason. Our very own RUF minister, Sammy Rhodes, he has written a book. It's going to come out in March. It's entitled, This is Awkward. You can pre-order it. You can order it. It's going to be a fantastic book. And you can get an excerpt of that on the Gospel Coalition and read that. And in that excerpt, he tells the story of a young man he had in ministry, in college ministry, who came to him and said to him that he was struggling with a pornography addiction that he had had most of his life. Now this guy's in college by now, and he had grown up in a church, he had been under solid teaching, he had been and participated in wonderful programs, but nobody ever talked in his church about sex, much less pornography. And so by the time he is sitting with Sammy across cups of coffee, he says to him, because no one ever talked about porn, I felt like it must be the worst sin in the world. And I was so scared and ashamed to tell anyone about it. There are people in this room right now, sitting with us here today, who carry the unbearable weight of sexual addiction whether that's acting out in adultery, whether that's pornography, whether that's simply letting our eyes roam in the workplace. We, like David, carry this suffocating sin and it comes with so much shame we would rather die than tell another person. Some of us in this room, we carry the greed of Nabal right? We are so materialistic. We are so caught up in what we have and what we don't have and what we want and how buying those things will satisfy us, that those thoughts and where we actually spend our money is so humiliating. We would never, ever, ever want another person to know that. Some of us, like Saul, we struggle with deep, deep, lowly self-worth, and it breeds all kinds of things in us, jealousy and envy and anxiety and self-loathing, and we think things about ourselves and we do things to our body that is so shameful we could not bear the thought of another human being knowing what we think and how we respond. Please hear me. The greatest lie that the devil will tell you this morning as you think about some of these things in your own heart and your own life is that if you can just get out of the service, if you can get home, if you can get between you and God, if you confess this earnestly this time with all your heart and you promise that you'll never, ever, ever, ever do it again, you'll be free. I wonder how many times David, unchecked by another person, came before God And said, please take this from me. Take this lust. Take this desire from me. I don't want to ever do it again. And yet he fell again and again and again. The Bible is grabbing us and it is forcing us to watch three men who wrestle with three different addictions and they never become free. In a very different situation, David writes in Psalm 38, 4, which is so fitting to think about this kind of sin. For my iniquities are gone over my head. As a heavy burden, they weigh too much for me. I I can't bear the weight of these things. They're over my head. They are too heavy for me. When we are willing to repent in a community of faith, If we will reach out to a fellow brother and a sister and we will share these things with each other and say, I need you to fortify me to come before the living God and to confess these things. And then together, I want to walk this path of freedom. This is an invitation. Repentance is an invitation to put down this unbearable load and to turn and to follow Jesus. And when we do that, we say to one another with David in verse 32, Blessed be the Lord who sent you. Blessed be the Lord who sent you, friend, into my life to carry this burden with me. Friend, if you are not a believer, if you've never repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus, and you this morning feel the weight of that sin, I beg you, find a friend, confess that sin before the Lord, and run to Jesus. If you are a Christian, if you are born again and you sense within your own heart, these things are here and they rage within me and I'm afraid, I beg you, grab a friend, confess these things to them and run to Jesus and Jesus within this community of faith, he will set you free. Let's pray together. Lord, I can't help but think that some of us, we've given up a long, long time ago. We see just how raging this addiction is within us. We cannot imagine a world in which it's not with us. And so we've given up. And honestly, that makes us mistrust you and your goodness. I beg you by the power of your Holy Spirit to reach inside of us, to give us the courage to reach out to one another and together to run to you, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Would you do that? Would you free us as a community? Let us sigh in relief as we put down the burden of our sin. Would you lift up our heads and free us from shame? We beg you in Jesus' name, amen.